Can running actually kill you? You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Caskell. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. My guest today is Dr. Matthew Sorrentino, Associate Professor of Medicine in the Section of Cardiology at the University of Chicago Pritzker School of Medicine. Dr. Sorrentino, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Well, you're a Chicagoan, and uh, I'm sure you're aware of the Chicago Marathon that occurred recently. Well, as you know, this marathon uh, made the headlines because the weather conditions were not the most conducive for running, and unfortunately, we had a number of medical events that occurred during this marathon. So, yeah, it was a terrible day that day. I think it was uh, in the 80s and humid and maybe even touched 90. It started out uh, fairly well. At the beginning of the race, the temperature was about 70, and it looked like the conditions were going to be okay. But as the race progressed, it got hotter and more humid, and uh, eventually all the water was used up. And there were a lot of people who succumbed to dehydration and heat, I believe up to 200-some people uh, met criteria for hospitalization. So there were a lot of conditions that were a problem. Specifically, I'm sure people who have watched the news or been on the Internet know that uh, there was one marathon runner that died and subsequently went on to have an autopsy revealing mitral valve prolapse. So the question is, did his mitral valve prolapse kill him? Did it contribute to killing him? Or was it totally a coincidental finding? So this is hard to say, not being involved in the autopsy or knowing the degree of his mitral valve prolapse, what we can say in general is that uh, mitral valve prolapse is a very common condition. In most individuals, it has minimal to no clinical consequences, and it is possible that uh, dehydration and uh, heat stroke and running may have possibly caused some symptoms or augmented the prolapse or augmented mitral regurgitation. But I think it's also very likely that he may have had problems due to profound dehydration, muscle breakdown. In other words, this death could have occurred with or without the presence of mitral valve prolapse. It's not a precondition we had to have. I kind of think of it as, you know, many men die with prostate cancer, but not from prostate cancer. Exactly right. If we look at epidemiology, and and there's problems with epidemiology because the definition of mitral valve prolapse has changed over the years, but it's estimated that 3 to 5% of the American population will meet criteria for mitral valve prolapse. So this is a lot of people where it will be a coincidence that, yes, someone has mitral valve prolapse, but they have a medical condition that uh, may have nothing to do with it. Uh, I call it sometimes the innocent bystander. Something else happened, just happened to have mitral valve prolapse. Let's talk a little bit more about mitral valve prolapse. Can I diagnose it just by listening to someone, or do I need an echo to confirm it. There is a classic auscultory finding that gives you a very high suspicion of mitral valve prolapse. Usually has non-ejection clicks. These are clicks in the middle of systole that are happening far enough away from the first heart sound that we know it's not due to opening of the aortic valve. It's then followed by a late systolic murmur, usually a murmur that's increasing in intensity. And certain maneuvers, uh, such as sitting to standing or squatting, can change both the timing and the intensity of the murmur. If you have that classic finding, you have a very high suspicion that mitral valve prolapse is present and you usually don't need imaging then. Do you ever have somebody sent to you just for that particular consultation, uh, evaluation of new heart murmur, and it just turns out to be MVP and you say, see you later? Sometimes, yes, although I would say the most common reason for consultation is patients who have nonspecific symptoms. Usually it's intermittent chest pains or palpitations or dizzy episodes, 
and the query is, could mitral valve prolapse be causing these symptoms? So there is an impression in the general medical world that there is a constellation of symptoms that go along with mitral valve prolapse. Even if you don't hear a murmur, there's a supposition that that's the cause and that's why they're sent. You know, mitral valve is so common, and so are anxiety disorders. So once again, how do you dissect out what is causing what? It just may be that there are so many people out there, and when they come in with their palpitations, 5% of them are going to have mitral valve prolapse. That's exactly right, and that's why very careful studies have been done in the more recent era trying to correlate true mitral valve prolapse. So this is echocardiographic diagnosis where there's definite prolapse of the leaflets beyond the annulus. There is definite thickening of the leaflets. There's definite regurgitation. Having age and sex matched individuals without that and then doing a careful survey of symptoms to see if palpitations, anxiety, chest pains are increased. And what these studies have shown is that there is a slight increase in palpitations usually just single skipped beats. Chest pain is very close to the same in both, but there might be a very slight increase in chest pain. But beyond that, most of the symptoms that are associated with mitral valve prolapse are as common in the general population. Dr. Sorrentino, what about migraineurs? I've heard that there's a correlation between mitral valve prolapse and getting migraines. Can you explain that one to me? I think it's the same type of data that we were just talking about two common conditions. Mitral valve prolapse is very common in the population. Headaches and migraine headaches are very common in the population. And so to prove that there's a direct link one to the other has been very difficult. Certainly, there's no pathophysiologic reason why we would think that there's a connection. The same type of discussion came up with patent foramen ovale. Uh, there was a concern that a patent foramen ovale can cause some right-to-left shunting, more bubbles go to the brain, more migraines. Some studies suggested yes, some no. Some studies suggested more patent foramen ovales were open in patients with mitral valve prolapse. But if you very carefully look at these patients, make sure you've got a true diagnosis, we find in these populations that we're looking at two common things that are just coincidentally together. All right. It's time for Dr. Matthew Sorrentino to soothe the American public that mitral valve prolapse will not kill you. Let's start with that. Yes. Mitral valve prolapse is, in the vast majority of patients, a benign condition that causes little to no symptoms. It's only a very small subset, uh, maybe a percent or so, that has a significantly thickened valve that is leaking where there is an increased risk. Very careful studies were done to look to see if malignant arrhythmias or sudden death is increased in mitral valve prolapse. And if we look carefully at that data, it does not appear that there's a signal of increased risk. If there is, it's extremely small, and it will be seen in the patients who have the extreme end of the disease, those that have enough mitral regurgitation that they may have some structural changes of the heart. So for the vast majority of patients, Minimal symptoms, you can run, you can jog, you can exercise, no restrictions with this disease. And are there different types of uh, mitral valve disease? I, I know that you can have some sort of myxomatous degeneration. Is that is that different than MVP? The way I like to look at it as follows. There's two different MVP diseases that we think about. There are structurally normal valves that happen to prolapse, and we can make anybody's valve prolapse if we dehydrate you enough. Um, that's really not a disease. That's just due to hemodynamic changes. 
And then there's the true myxomatous degeneration. Some people call it Barlow's disease because Dr. Barlow in South Africa in the mid-60s was the first to identify it. This is a structural abnormality of the valve. One of the structural proteins is abnormal. Wear and tear of this valve causes this myxomatous degeneration. The valve becomes retracted. The uh, chordae becomes stretched and thickened and may snap. That's the real disease, but that's a much, much rarer subset of mitral valve prolapse. Dr. Sorrentino, I know recently the guidelines changed for endocarditis prophylaxis for people with MVP. Can you go over those for me, please? Yes, they have changed and somewhat controversial. The change is that if you have mitral valve prolapse, no longer do you need to have antibiotic prophylaxis for dental or GU procedures. And the reason was thought that the risk of endocarditis was extremely small potential risk of adverse effects to the antibiotic was about equal to the risk of endocarditis, and that we frequently have subclinical bacteremias just when we brush our teeth, and so why take it only for dental procedures uh, when the risk is low and you're already being exposed at other times and not getting endocarditis? So that's why it was recommended that it's not needed. There are some people, though, who suggest that if you're going to have a fairly extensive dental work, especially periodontal work, where there's going to be a lot of bleeding, especially with uh, diseased uh, gums where there's a lot of potential bacteria, so your risk of bacteremia is high, and you have very thickened valves that are leaking, in other words, you have an easily audible murmur, you may be on the safe side to consider prophylaxing those individuals with amoxicillin or the equivalent before those treatments. The murmur now takes on a little more importance than just a click. If you just have a click, no need to worry. No need to worry. The valves that are at the most risk of endocarditis are the thickest valves. The thickest valves are the ones that tend to be retracted and tend to leak. And so the murmur is a surrogate marker for a very thick valve. So definite murmur, the louder, the longer insistently it is, the more likely you have a thicker valve. Those are the ones you may want to consider prophylaxis. Again, the guidelines say you don't have to, but I would use your clinical judgment in the case where bacteremia is very likely, and in your particular patient, your valve, you know your valve is abnormal, that patient you still might want to be on the safe side. I'd like to talk a little bit about the more severe cases of mitral valve prolapse when you really need to worry and watch how much regurgitation there is and if you'd actually have to replace the valve. How do you go about assessing that? Symptoms are the first thing. If somebody starts getting exertional symptoms, they feel breathless at levels of exertion they before could do easily. If they notice uh, more chest pain with exertion, uh, then it should be evaluated. If you listen and the murmur's gotten louder or extends now throughout systole instead of late systole, it's time to evaluate it. What you're really evaluating is for the degree of mitral regurgitation. Some patients with prolapse will regurgitate more with exertion. So at rest, they may have minimal regurgitation, but as they uh, increase their physical activity, the regurgitation may worsen. We will sometimes follow these patients by a treadmill test, echo before the treadmill, and then echo right at the end of treadmill to see if the regurgitation has worsened. In those individuals where filling pressures are high, the left ventricle is dilating more, the left ventricle may start to show some signs of reduced function, symptoms are starting to occur, then surgery would be indicated, and usually it's not replacement. Usually these valves can be easily repaired, and so you're left with your own valve, but it's been repaired. What kind of numbers are we talking about in terms of people who have mitral valve prolapse? How many of them go on to actually develop a severe case of it? If we talk about the whole world of mitral valve prolapse, that's including a lot of patients who are given the diagnosis but have normal valves. We're talking only a few percent at the most. 
if we're talking about the true Barlow syndrome, the thickened valves, it's going to be a little bit higher, but still, it's probably only 5-6% of patients with mitral valve prolapse that need an operation. The vast majority never do. Well, I'd like to recap. We started talking about the marathon runner who died in the Chicago Marathon and had an autopsy done revealing mitral valve prolapse. I think it's yours and my opinion that the mitral valve prolapse probably was not the sole cause of his death, but perhaps contributed when you add on dehydration. Is that correct? Yeah, and I think that's an important point because you may decide to run a marathon and have an exam and have a perfectly normal heart, but still there could be some risk, especially with conditions that occurred on that Sunday marathon. So you need to listen to what your body is telling you. If you are feeling lightheaded, if you're feeling confused, if you're feeling much more breathless than usual, if you're feeling a lot of lactic acidosis buildup, your muscles are really hurting, slow down, hydrate, because even a patient with a normal heart can have complications in those conditions. Well, that's good advice. And Matthew Sorrentino, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. For comments or questions, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. And thank you for listening.